Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast that can explain the most pressing world events and also give you a detailed description of every episode of Friends. I mean, honestly, I could just act them out for you right now if you need me to. And if you tell me that they're out of date, then we can't be friends. Did you see what I did there? I'm Dr. Adrienne Trierbenik. I'm your host. And in case you're hearing this for the first time, I am a real-life college professor of sociology, and I created this podcast to combine my two loves, pop culture and the impact it has on our lives. Today, I am talking with Elizabeth Chuck. Elizabeth is a senior writer at NBC News, and she reports on food insecurity, health issues, and she's particularly interested in stories on uh, health issues that affect women and children. I have known Elizabeth for a few years. She's interviewed me a few times for some of the stuff she's written for NBC um, and has posted on on NBCnews.com. And I wanted to have this conversation with her because at the time when we recorded it, it was in the midst of the 2020 election. And uh, there was a lot of discussion about what news is real? What news is fake? How do we know? What's the difference? How does a reporter work? Uh, what do journalists do to guarantee that their sources are correct? And there was just a lot of misinformation flying around, um, especially when we start to tag in social media and the impact that posting something on social media and calling it news tends to have. So knowing Elizabeth just a little bit, just a little bit, um, I, I set out a prayer and said, you know, would you please come explain this on my podcast and to my students? And she said yes. So we are going to have this this conversation about uh, what journalism is, how it, uh, what folks do in order to get a good story, what it means to have uh, the quote real news of our society, uh, in our society, um, and you know accurate depictions of what is actually happening. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It is one of my um, favorites, and it's with a person who is doing this on the daily. On the daily, she's trying to figure out how to bring stories and people's lives into the world. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to Most Popular. Hi, Adrian. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So I want to start by talking about you. Um, can you just explain a little bit about how you got to become a reporter and what sort of path led you there? Sure. So I have always loved writing ever since I was really young. And I've known since high school that I wanted to be, that I wanted to become a journalist. I was on both my high school and college newspaper. It was pretty much my main curricular. I was <laughs> extracurricular. I was kind of nerdy. Um, and I, yeah, I just always knew that this was what I wanted to do. I love interviewing other people and telling their stories, and I just love getting the opportunity to, you know, spread the word about interesting news and interesting things that are happening. So knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to become a journalist. Um, however, I chose to go to a college where they didn't have a single journalism class, never mind even a journalism major. Wow. So this was, yes, this was perhaps a little unusual, but it ended up working out okay. As I said, I was on the on the paper at my at my college and able to do it outside of my courses. And I ended up becoming a French studies major. I studied abroad in Paris and really love languages. So it was just sort of a fun thing to be able to to major in. And I other than that I took, you know, creative writing classes and other sorts of writing classes through school. Um, and then after while I was in, while I was still in college, I interned at the Hartford Current in Connecticut. I went to school at Wesleyan University, so mm -hmm. it was fairly close. And that internship was just invaluable, both in confirming to me that this was what I wanted to do, and also just getting some experience doing the actual work for an actual paper. My editors were extremely patient and kind with me and really were, you know, the first people who taught me in any sort of official cap capacity that this is how you do the job. Um, following that, I got another internship right after I graduated at what was then msnbc.com and has now turned into nbcnews.com. And I have been here ever since. This is my 15th year with NBC News. I've been on the digital side for the most part um, over the course of those 15 years and um, done various positions, but I'm 
now on the news team for NBCNews.com, focusing um, on women, children, health issues, all kinds of things. What led you to that? I'm kind of curious. What led you to looking at women, women's health, women and children's health? That's a good question. It's just sort of been something that I have always been interested in, I guess, partly because I am a woman and, of course, can relate mm-hmm. to to some degree to many of the people who I'm interviewing, can understand the importance of covering topics that affect women. And I also just feel like, and this is, this is not to say that all men cannot write about women's issues or shouldn't write about women's issues, but I often feel like there is are too many men writing about women's issues that we need (laughs) women covering women's issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And that goes beyond journalism. I mean, that's in politics too. It's, you know, obviously um, it's good to have all genders, whatever, however you identify it, but it's good to have someone other than just, you know, straight white men making decisions or or covering uh, decisions that affect women. So I guess it's just, um, you know, something of a, you know, mini feminist perspective there, but also just something, as I said, that I feel like I can relate to and understand why this is something that needs to be covered in a way that I'm not certain that um, many of my male colleagues who are wonderful um, would understand as intimately. Um, And as for children, I just have always felt, I have two children myself and I've always felt like, you know, they are, children in general don't have the voice or sometimes the words to, to articulate about things that they need, or maybe they don't even know what it is that they need. And I feel like um, they're just a very, you know, vulnerable, innocent population that um, should have the best of the best. And, and if they're not having the best of the best in this country, you know, we should, we should address that. Um, there's a story that I tell when I um, talk about research methods because historically research, uh, scientific or social science based, was done on white men, and it was assumed that if it was if it worked for a white man, that everybody else would be fine, and it didn't matter race mm. or gender. So a friend of mine, this was years ago when I was a grad student at Virginia Tech, went to. Um, I'm not going to say what university it was because this isn't great, but she went to another university to tour their their um, engineering um, program. She was an engineering doctoral candidate and they were doing medical engineering and they showed her these robots and they said, you know, we can simulate just about anything that we need to do on these robots, any surgery, anything we, we want to do medically. And um, she said, she looked at all of them and she goes, well, these all look like male robots. And she says, what do you do when you need to do simulate work on a woman? And they said, well, we put a wig on her and then we say, now you're working on a female robot. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so you're not off when you say that <laughs> when we address health, specifically health issues, it's different for women and men. It just is. I right. mean, you right. know. There's a reason why um, women get so upset about things like tampon taxes and and pink taxes and all that. Um, so exactly. yeah, it's not to slight anyone. It's just it's just sort of how it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. So, I think I mentioned the I mentioned this in my email. We talked about this a little bit. Uh, I wanted to kind of give people an understanding of what a reporter's life is like and what a journalist's life is like. So can you kind of just walk us through the the steps you take when you're getting ready to report a piece, when you're kind of prepping it, when you've actually written it, and then when you submit it? Sure. So I do a couple different types of reporting. I will sometimes do some quicker turnaround pieces that might take, you know, anywhere from an hour to the entire day to um, to longer term stories and longer term stories might mean it's you know a week's worth of reporting or in the case of a story I've been I'm finishing up right now it's been literally six months that I've been working on it wow. so the process of, yeah so the process of course varies a little bit depending on the length of the story the length of the reporting time but generally speaking I will either be assigned the story from my editor if it's something that he 
you know, feels that we need to cover and feels like it would be a good fit for um, to assign to me. Um, or I will send a pitch to the editor if it's an idea that I have on my own. With the pitch, I will try to be as specific and detailed as possible. Um, that might include including that might include some statistics about whatever topic I'm pitching about or some recent development that, you know, proves why this is a timely story, or even mm -hmm. though it's just the pitch and hasn't been approved yet by the editor, it might even include some quotes from a source if I just do an initial call to, you know, get a sense of what experts say about this topic um, and and what they what might ultimately end up in the piece. Um, once the story has either been assigned, um, if if my editor assigns it or it's been approved, if I've pitched it, then it's a matter of finding the right people to speak with for the story. And um, we are fortunate at NBC News to have a huge database of sources um, mm -hmm. that we use both on camera, you know, MSNBC or NBC Nightly News, the Today Show, uh, as well as as people that we can use for the digital properties like NBCNews.com. So sometimes I will just look in our massive database of of sources to find someone to speak with, or I keep a running list of sources for myself that um, I've inter I've, I've either interviewed myself or that I've seen quoted in other publications that I trust, who I've just added added to my database, my personal database, saying you know this person mm -hmm. is an expert in whatever subject in case I ever need to write about that subject. So yeah, then it's just doing interviews. Most of my interviews are done over the phone, although sometimes I'll do field reporting as well, where I go out and, you know, see the sources at their house or, or in their environment, whatever the topic of the story pertains to. Um, so yeah, I will usually write my list of questions ahead of time before I call the source. Um, and of course there's, you know, the logistics aspect as well, like emailing the person or calling them and, and figuring out a time when they have a few minutes to chat and then actually getting them um, on the phone at that time to, to do the interview. But anyway, I will, I will write out my list of questions in advance and then interview the person. And um, I always like to end by making sure that I have the correct title for them. And of course the correct <laughs> spelling of their first and last names. Mm -hmm. It seems like a pretty basic fact, but you would be surprised how often um, the title that someone has on, say, if they're a professor or a, um, I don't know, a, a doctor associated with um, a large hospital or something like that, you'd be surprised how often their title that I've seen on their website is is either outdated or not the thing that they want to, you know, be identified in as, as in print. I mean, they might say, Oh, I want to be identified um, as the chief research officer, right. not as the director of such and such when they're, when they're both. So anyway, <laughs> just, you know, kind of basic fact, fact, fact checking questions. And then um, if it is a, if it's, a daily story, then usually I'll just start writing and, um, you know, get everything on paper, do a quick self edit and then send it over to my editor for, um, for him or her to edit. If it's a long-term story, um, something that's going to be, you know, more complex involving more sources and a lot and is a longer piece i'm packing like 1200 words or more then i will usually first have a talk with my editor about how i want to structure the story um and get some feedback on that and we'll hammer it out together um and then i yeah start writing i I personally find that I, and I don't know if you can relate to this in your own writing, but I personally find that I really can't move on with um, writing even the roughest of drafts until I feel somewhat confident in the top of the piece that I've written. Oh, yes. Sometimes yes. Will, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sometimes I will really agonize over that yeah. section. Um to the point where it, I mean, it gets kind of absurd, like you've got to just move on with your life. <laughs> um, 
but I, for me, it's very difficult if I don't feel like I have a strong top, even in the draft, I, I have a hard time, um, writing the rest of it. So yes, I would say that's where the bulk of the effort and, uh, OCD like tendencies comes in. Well, it's because for me, I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, that first paragraph is sort of like a mini outline of everything else I want to write about. And maybe to no one else, they see that. But to me, in my mind, it's little, little things to remind me, oh, include this in the bottom or put this somewhere. It's like a a rough sketch of what everything else is going to look like, but I I get it exactly I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Yeah. So what I'm taking is that you put a lot into uh, the stories that you're coming up with and the things that you are putting out um, onto NBC News. So uh, what, what misconceptions do you think people have about what being a reporter is? Or do you think there's none? And uh, it's a very basic thing. No, I definitely agree that that there are a lot of misconceptions. I think that many readers think that we have an agenda that we're inserting our opinions mm. into our news pieces mm-hmm. and our our articles. And for the most part, I mean, of course, everybody has unconscious biases that they're going to bring mm-hmm. to everything, and that's you know very hard to avoid. But I, the idea that we are purposely publishing things with an agenda are that that really couldn't be further from the truth. And I think that any good reporter is going to make the effort to get both sides of a story, regardless of what topic it is, or regardless of what your own opinions are of it. But what's interesting is that even when that happens, even when you have the opposing voices in a piece, readers are going to interpret it one way or the other. And my coworkers and I will often joke that we know we've done a good job when we get hate mail from both sides of the argument about <laughs> a story um, because you're, then you realize, okay, so we've made everyone mad. It's a success. <laughs> we, were, we achieved our goal here. So I think that that's a really big and the primary misconception that people really, there's a lot of people, a lot of readers who unfortunately think that we are doing this with some sort of, angle that we're trying to get out and some sort of purpose. And that's really not the case. Of course, there are some, you know, websites that are more left leaning or more conservative or more whatever, who who clearly state that they are not an unbiased news right. source, but, but we are. And I, I feel that we do our best to, to maintain that across the site, but it's, often, um, you know, perceived otherwise. That's a really great transition into explaining what I've been referring to as the difference between real real news versus fake news. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think I talked to you about the assignment I have my students do, but what do you, how do you see the difference between the two? Well, as someone who reports, I'm the, this is not, I, I know this is an, probably not exactly the answer that you're, that you're looking for, but I think it's so important that I just want to bring it up. Yeah. As someone who reports on a lot of health issues, to me, the term fake news is, is really dangerous because it's, um, when I think of fake news and when I think of what I consider fake news, I think of, for example, a lot of the anti vax sites out there that present themselves as Mm -hmm. very valid and cite Mm -hmm. so-called experts and don't really anywhere on their site on their site make clear that they do have an agenda and because this presents as a kind of expert expert website on the topic you know we've, we've seen this right we've seen this with measles we've seen this with other things where you know, suddenly this is getting passed around Facebook and nobody Mm -hmm. knows the deal. Nobody knows how shady the source is. And next thing you know, we are having outbreaks of measles, which should have been and was eradicated decades ago because people saw something that was fake health news and believed it to be real news. So it's just, it's so frustrating to me that, that that exists. And of course the internet um, and social media makes this all so much easier to spread fake news. But I think um, also more generally speaking, beyond just 
health misinformation, the term fake news really didn't exist before 2016 or, or if it did, it didn't, it wasn't as broadly applied Mm -hmm. to the mainstream media. I think that um, it's, as you said, it's a good transition from what we were talking about before, because I think a lot of readers, especially some of certain political persuasions assume that, um, that, you know, many mainstream media outlets not only are publishing news that is wrong because it doesn't support their own political or, or religious views, but that we are purposely doing it so that we can spread lies. And that's, yeah. and they've kind of lumped this all together as you are the fake news media. You are, you know, insulting our president or insulting our stance on a variety of issues. And you are, you are doing this purposely so that you can spread your strange fake news <laughs> views. And it's, it's really kind of mystifying. I mean, we as reporters do see this all the time. I mean, this is a, a regular line that we get in reader emails or at replies on Twitter. And it's kind of mystifying to us because if anything, I feel that journalism and journalists have become much more stronger. It's much stronger in their craft. I mean, yeah. We, can't really afford to make, yeah. not that it was ever okay to have a mistake, but we can't really afford to make errors in a climate like this. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that we have all become even, even, you know, more thorough in making sure that our stories are accurate and even more careful in making sure that we have a balanced perspective on, um, in all of our stories that we're reporting on. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to me because I feel like if anything, we are even further than being fake news. And yet we are accused of being that all the time. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird, it's a, it's an odd kind of bubble to exist in because um, on the one hand, people are going to make mistakes. I mean, that's just the nature of being a human being. You're, you're, there's going to be a mistake made. And every time you make a mistake, it shouldn't be cited as fake news. It should just be you're a human being. And sometimes you're going to spell a name wrong or get a statistic wrong or dyslexia is going to set in after exhaustion or or something. Um, Right. But it seems to me fake news has become the term for I don't like it. So I'm going to say it's fake. And that's what's dangerous because you're just filtering out things and, and, and disbelieving reality because it doesn't apply to your worldview. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And, you know, I would just like to say that all journalists are not perfect. Like you said, everyone's human and maybe there are some, um, I mean, I personally feel like everyone I work with is so intelligent and so good at, at their job, but Generally speaking, as a field, I'm sure that there are, you know, some journalists who, who are not all, you know, as as wonderful as my colleagues. So um, I certainly can, you know, understand the perspective. But as you said, when it becomes applied so broadly to an entire mm-hmm. industry, just because some people do not agree or feel like they like what they're reading, it, it does become dangerous. You're absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's... Um... To me, it's, I feel like, I, I'll, I'll check this later, but I feel like it was one of like, you know how at the end of the year, the uh, Webster's Dictionary puts out the most used words of the year. I feel like one year fake news made it in to that list of things that, that was said the most um, just because of this shift since the election. Um, this is, I kind of want to do a hard turn <laughs> if we can, because sure. um, I, I wrote this as a, as a totally random question for you, uh, but um, I've written a little bit for stuff online and I've had stuff that uh, like my books and things have gone online and then people have commented on them. And I, so I've dealt with my fair share of trolls and people just trying to be um, obnoxious just to be obnoxious. Uh, and I know from right. reading through your Facebook page that you're not immune to some odd ducks that have crossed your path. You are correct. <laughs> um, so how how have you dealt with that, um, with trolling or with people just trying to pass on a lot of negativity or blowing up your feed to uh, pass on negative information? How do you handle that? 
I personally do not give them oxygen. I don't think that it makes sense to engage with with people who are just commenting to be rude and to make make a claim that's outrageous about something that I've reported. I will say some of my colleagues deal with this differently. I have seen some of them who will, you know, engage and interact and and have a back and forth. Um, for me personally, that's not something that I feel comfortable with. However, if someone is um, trolling me in a way that seems like, wait a minute, they might actually have a legitimate point here. There might be something in my story that needs to be clarified or needs to be added or or even needs to be corrected. So if that is the case, even if someone is <laughs> saying, you know, saying it to me in a really rude way, I certainly will always you know, look into that. If they're saying, you know, you were totally wrong here. I, I will, I'll always reach, I'll always um, look into it. And if they, if they're right and I was wrong, I always politely respond and say, thank Mm -hmm. you so much for reading. Thank you for pointing this out. Because the fact is I don't want to have anything that is inaccurate or, or is, could be interpreted in a way that's inaccurate in any of my stories. So I appreciate it. Do I appreciate the rudeness? No, but <laughs> if someone's pointing out something that is incorrect, I'm I'm always grateful that they take the time to do it. But generally speaking, trolls, I yeah, do not. I, my my thinking is don't give them oxygen, don't engage. Not something I'm yeah interested in. It's um. There's a really great book called This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, and I'm blanking on the author, but she studied trolls. She went online and I think kind of trolled the trolls for some time and and did an analysis of their behavior. And one of the things she found was that that's what feeds them is, like you said, to give them oxygen. It, it It's what makes people want to keep coming back. But can I just say how refreshing it is that you're so open-minded that you're like, well, maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. Let me double check and make sure that I didn't do something. I mean, that's that's amazing that you can keep that presence of mind and say, everyone has a space. Let's just make sure I'm I'm correct and carry on. Thank you. Well, um, an example that I think of probably as my top trolled story is about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or two years ago, I wrote a story examining um, water fluoridation, which sounds really, I mean, it sounds kind of, yes, it sounds kind of boring just as a topic. But the idea, the premise of the story was that um, science shows that fluoride in water is good for kids, that it prevents cavities and that there are um, really, it's, it's such a minute amount in the water that it's enough to, you know, prevent tooth decay and cavities, but not enough to cause any um, mm-hmm. side effects or, or negative safety concerns. Um, but the idea of the story was that science says that, however, there are many people who have, um, for lack of a better word, conspiracy theories about water fluoridation, that it's causing all sorts of illnesses ranging from Alzheimer's to cancer, that it's making people dumb, and even as far as that it's a way for the government to control us. So it was this look at how um, some states and some cities are having, are holding votes on whether to either continue fluoridating their water or to um, fluoridate for the first time if they, if they haven't already started adding fluoride to their water. And that story, Adrian, I, I'm still getting emails to this day, almost, what? you know, more than a year later about where it's people sending me studies from Iran. I, I mean, it's insane. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and it was, <clears throat> when the story came out, it was, I mean, my inbox was not a happy place to be. It was wow. very, very intense. Just, I guess it's just kind of like, sort of like the anti- the the vaccine um, controversy mm-hmm. it's just you know a kind of similar thing like a a health something that affects everyone personally a health issue that somehow has turned into a much broader you know this is the government versus the people kind of issue but I will say uh, I I got many 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 crazy emails after I wrote that story wow. but I got one that we actually um added a line to the story because it 
and of course I'm I'm not able to remember what it was I not able to remember now what it was but it was something where I thought okay here we go here's another really you know crazy email in my inbox but I read it through and there was there was one point that they made that I went back to my editor and I said you know this is a good point maybe we should add a clause and we ended up adding I wish I could remember what it was. We ended up adding a few words to the sentence just to clarify things to this reader. And I emailed them back. I said, thank you so much. We've, you know, updated the story with, with this detail. I, I appreciate that you took the time to write to me. But yeah. So wow. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes amid the trolls, there's, there's something very helpful. And I think it's, you know, not fair to, to just kind of write, write them all off. Um, it's so funny that you would, this is a side note, as you would mention fluoride, but um, I grew up in a really, really small town in northern Michigan, really rural community. So there was no fluoride in our water. My parents would take me to the dentist mm-hmm. and they would have me rinse my mouth twice a month with fluoride. And I hated it. It was gross. It was, I had to do it for like two minutes straight without spitting it out. It was the, uh. it was the worst. But as an adult, <laughs> as an adult, my teeth are amazing. <laughs> So <laughs> it worked out really that well. So funny. There's also a really right. funny that's part. Interesting. I, that's actually very interesting. I didn't come across that in the story. A what if your town doesn't floor, doesn't have fluoride in the water? Do, do dentists offer that? That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, they, they mine did. Um, there's also a really funny episode of Parks and Recreation where they want to add fluoride to the water and the town freaks out. It's I'll send you the the link to it. It's very funny. That so as we're wrapping up, I have a couple more things. I just wanted to know if you have any journalist heroes or people that you just love to read or watch. Well, I'm a huge admirer of Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor of the New York Times mm. for what they did to break open the Harvey Weinstein scandal and mm-hmm. start the Me Too movement. I think that they are absolutely incredible. I'm so happy that they won the Pulitzer for that, as well as Ronan Farrow, who literally at times risked his life to get that story out for the New Yorker. So I would say that, um, yeah, at the moment, they are for sure all my journalist heroes. Amen to that. I I completely agree. I've read everything about all of them, including their stuff. Yeah. It's fascinating. Awesome. Um, okay. And then the question I'm asking everybody, um, who or what do you think deserves to be voted most popular? Okay, so this is not news related, but okay. I feel like M. Night Shyamalan's series Servant on Apple TV Plus is <laughs> so great and has not gotten nearly enough attention or accolades. Um, have you watched the show? No, now I'm going to, though. Yes, please do. I mean, I think that you are not alone. It, it feels like nobody is watching it except for all of the people on the Reddit board about Servant who immediately <laughs> cluster um, on Reddit after each episode and like share their theories and reactions. But it's it's just a beautifully shot show and the acting is so strong and it's also just very, very, very creepy. Um, <laughs> and the show that is not the, I mean, I guess the acting as well, but um, yeah. yeah, it's, I, I really feel like Servant deserves to be voted most popular, which I guess is, ironic given that it's it sounds like it's very um actually unpopular <laughs> but i think it deserves to be most popular i will say as a caveat um just this week a copyright infringement was filed against the show creators really by a filmmaker yes by a filmmaker who says that they cribbed from her film from i think a while many years ago but um i haven't seen i haven't seen her movie but the trailer looks very different. Mm. So I do still stand by my opinion that Servant should be voted most popular with that very minor caveat. <laughs> that just what makes you a true journalist. Like, you know, but just there's a small detail. Just, let's just make sure that's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for doing this and for talking with me. I just, I cannot thank you enough. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to do so. I thank you for it. Hi, Elizabeth. Welcome to Most Popular. Hi, Adrian. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So I want to start by talking about you. Um, can you just explain a little bit about how you got to become a reporter 
and what sort of path led you there? Sure. So I have always loved writing ever since I was really young. And I've known since high school that I wanted to be that I wanted to become a journalist. I was on both my high school and college newspaper. It was pretty much my main curricular. I was <laughs> extracurricular. I was kind of nerdy. Um, and I, yeah, I just always knew that this was what I wanted to do. I love interviewing other people and telling their stories. And I just love getting the opportunity to, you know, spread the word about interesting news and interesting things that are happening. So knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to become a journalist. Um, however, I chose to go to a college where they didn't have a single journalism class, never mind even a journalism major. Wow. So this was, yes, this was perhaps a little unusual, but it ended up working out okay. As I said, I was on the on the paper at my at my college and able to do it outside of my courses. And I ended up becoming a French studies major. I studied abroad in Paris and really love languages. So it was just sort of a fun thing to be able to to major in. And I other than that I took, you know, creative writing classes and other sorts of writing classes through school. Um and then after while I was in, while I was still in college, I interned at the Hartford Current in Connecticut. I went to school at Wesleyan University, so mm-hmm. it was fairly close. And that internship was just invaluable, both in confirming to me that this was what I wanted to do, and also just getting some experience doing the actual work for an actual paper. My editors were extremely patient and kind with me and really were, you know, the first people who taught me in any sort of official capacity that this is how you do the job. Um, Following that, I got another internship right after I graduated at what was then msnbc.com and has now turned into nbcnews.com. And I have been here ever since. This is my 15th year with NBC News. I've been on the digital side for the most part um, over the course of those 15 years and um, done various positions, but I'm now on the news team for NBCnews.com focusing um, on women, children, health issues, all kinds of things. What led you to that? I'm kind of curious. What led you to looking at women, women's health, women, children's health? That's a good question. It's just sort of been something that I have always been interested in, I guess, partly because I am a woman and, of course, can relate mm-hmm. to to some degree to many of the people who I'm interviewing, can understand the importance of covering topics that affect women. And I also just feel like, and this is, this is not to say that all men cannot write about women's issues or shouldn't write about women's issues, but I often feel like there is are too many men writing about women's issues that we need women (laughs) covering women's issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And that goes beyond journalism. I mean, that's in politics too. It's, you know, obviously um, it's good to have all genders, whatever, however you identify it, but it's good to have someone other than just, you know, straight white men making decisions or or covering uh, decisions that affect women. So I guess it's just, um, you know, something of a, you know, mini feminist perspective there, but also just something, as I said, that I feel like I can relate to and understand why this is something that needs to be covered in a way that I'm not certain that um, many of my male colleagues who are wonderful um, would understand as intimately. Um, And as for children, I just have always felt, I have two children myself and I've always felt like, you know, they are, children in general don't have the voice or sometimes the words to to articulate about things that they need or maybe they don't even know what it is that they need. And I feel like yeah. um, they're just a very, you know, vulnerable, innocent population that um, should have the best of the best. And, and if they're not having the best of the best in this country, you know, we should, we should address that. Um, there's a story that I tell when I um, 
talk about research methods because historically research, uh, scientific or social science based, was done on white men, and it was assumed that if it was if it worked for a white man, that everybody else would be fine, and it didn't matter race mm. or gender. So a friend of mine, this was years ago when I was a grad student at Virginia Tech, went to. Um, I'm not going to say what university it was because this isn't great, but she went to another university to tour their their um, engineering um, program. She was an engineering doctoral candidate and they were doing medical engineering and they showed her these robots and they said, you know, we can simulate just about anything that we need to do on these robots, any surgery, anything we, we want to do medically. And um, she said, she looked at all of them and she goes, well, these all look like male robots. And she says, what do you do when you need to do simulate work on a woman? And they said, well, we put a wig on her and then we say, now you're working on a female robot. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so you're not off when you say that <laughs> when we address health, specifically health issues, it's different for women and men. It just is. I right. mean, you right. know. There's a reason why um, women get so upset about things like tampon taxes and, and pink taxes and all that. Um, so, exactly. yeah, it's not to slight anyone. It's just it's just sort of how it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I think I mentioned to the I mentioned this in my email. We talked about this a little bit. Uh, I wanted to kind of give people an understanding of what a reporter's life is like and what a journalist's life is like. So can you kind of just walk us through the the steps you take when you're getting ready to report a piece, when you're kind of prepping it, when you've actually written it, and then when you submit it? Sure. So I do a couple different types of reporting. I will sometimes do some quicker turnaround pieces that might take, you know, anywhere from an hour to the entire day to um, to longer term stories and longer term stories might mean it's you know a week's worth of reporting or in the case of a story I've been I'm finishing up right now it's been literally six months that I've been working on it wow. so the process of, yeah so the process of course varies a little bit depending on the length of the story the length of the reporting time but generally speaking I will either be assigned the story from my editor if it's something that he, you know, feels that we need to cover and feels like it would be a good fit for um, to assign to me, um, or I will send a pitch to the editor if it's an idea that I have on my own. With the pitch, I will try to be as specific and detailed as possible. Um, that might include, including, that might include some statistics about whatever topic I'm pitching about or some recent development that, you know, proves why this is a timely story or even mm -hmm. though it's just the pitch and hasn't been approved yet by the editor, it might even include some quotes from a source if I just do an initial call to, you know, get a sense of what experts say about this topic um, and, and what they, what might ultimately end up in the piece. Um, once the story has either been assigned, um, if, if my editor assigns it or it's been approved, if I've pitched it, then it's a matter of finding the right people to speak with for the story. And, um, we are fortunate at NBC news to have a huge database of sources, um, mm -hmm. that we use both on camera, you know, MSNBC or NBC nightly news, the today show, uh, as well as as people that we can use for the digital properties like NBCNews.com. So sometimes I will just look in our massive database of of sources to find someone to speak with, or I keep a running list of sources for myself that um, I've inter I've, I've either interviewed myself or that I've seen quoted in other publications that I trust, who I've just added added to my database, my personal database, saying you know this person mm -hmm. is an expert in whatever subject in case I ever need to write about that subject. So yeah, then it's just doing interviews. Most of my interviews are done over the phone, although sometimes I'll do field reporting as well, where I go out and, you know, see the sources at their house or, or in their environment, whatever the topic of the story pertains to. Um, so yeah, I will usually write my list of questions ahead of time before I call the source. Um, and of course there's, you know, 
the logistics aspect as well, like emailing the person or calling them and, and figuring out a time when they have a few minutes to chat and then actually getting them um, on the phone at that time to, to do the interview. But anyway, I will, I will write out my list of questions in advance and then interview the person. And um, I always like to end by making sure that I have the correct title for them. And of course the correct <laughs> spelling of their first and last name, mm-hmm. it seems like a pretty basic fact, but you would be surprised how often um, the title that someone has on, say if they're a professor or a, um, I don't know, a, a doctor associated with um, a large hospital or something like that, you'd be surprised how often their title that I've seen on their website is is either outdated or not the thing that they want to, you know, be identified in as as in print, I mean, they might say, oh, I want to be identified um, as the chief research officer, right. not as the director of such and such when they're when they're both. So anyway, <laughs> just you know, kind of basic fact, fact, fact checking questions. And then um, if it is a if it's a daily story, then usually I'll just start writing and, um, you know, get everything on paper, do a quick self-edit, and then send it over to my editor for um, for him or her to edit. If it's a long-term story, um, something that's going to be, you know, more complex involving more sources and, a long, and is a longer piece, I'm packing like 1,200 words or more, then I will usually first have a talk with my editor about how I want to structure the story um, and get some feedback on that and we'll hammer it out together. Um, and then I, yeah, start writing. I, I personally find that I, and I don't know if you can relate to this in your own writing, but I personally find that I really can't move on with um, writing even the roughest of drafts until I feel somewhat confident in the top of the piece that I've written. Oh, yes. Yes. Will, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sometimes I will really agonize over that (laughs) section um to the point where it i mean it gets kind of absurd like you've got to just move on with your life (laughs) um but i for me it's very difficult if i don't feel like i have a strong top even in the draft i i have a hard time um writing the rest of it so yes i would say that's where the bulk of the effort and uh OCD like tendencies comes in. Well, it's because for me, I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, that first paragraph is sort of like a mini outline of everything else I want to write about. And maybe to no one else, they see that. But to me, in my mind, it's little, little things to remind me, oh, include this in the bottom or put this somewhere. It's like a a rough sketch of what everything else is going to look like. But I I get it exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Yeah. So what I'm taking is that you put a lot into uh, the stories that you're coming up with and the things that you are putting out um, onto NBC News. So uh, what what misconceptions do you think people have about what being a reporter is? Or do you think there's none and uh, it's a very basic thing? No, I definitely agree that that there are a lot of misconceptions. I think that many readers think that we have an agenda that we're inserting our opinions mm. into our news pieces mm-hmm. and our, our articles. And for the most part, I mean, of course, everybody has unconscious biases that they're going to bring mm-hmm. to everything. And that's, you know, very hard to avoid. But I, the idea that we are purposely publishing things with an agenda are that that really couldn't be further from the truth. And I think that any good reporter is going to make the effort to get both sides of a story, regardless of what topic it is, or regardless of what your own opinions are of it. But what's interesting is that even when that happens, even when you have the opposing voices in a piece, readers are going to interpret it one way or the other. And my coworkers and I will often joke that we know we've done a good job when we get hate mail from both sides of the <laughs> argument about a story um, because you're, then you realize, okay, so we've made everyone mad. It's a success. <laughs> we, were, we achieved our goal here. So I think that that's a really big 
and the primary misconception that people really, there's a lot of people, a lot of readers who unfortunately think that we are doing this with some sort of angle that we're trying to get out and some sort of purpose. And that's really not the case. Of course, there are some, you know, websites that are more left-leaning or more conservative or more whatever, who who clearly state that they are not an unbiased news right. source, but, but we are. And I, I feel that we do our best to, to maintain that across the site, but it's often, um, you know, perceived otherwise. That's a really great transition into explaining what I've been referring to is the difference between real versus real news versus fake news. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think I talked to you about the assignment I have my students do, but what do you, how do you see the difference between the two? Well, as someone who reports, and this is not, I I know this is probably not exactly the answer that you're, that you're looking for, but I think (laughs) it's so important that I just want to bring it up. As someone who reports on a lot of health issues, to me, the term fake news is is really dangerous because it um, when I think of fake news and when I think of what I consider fake news, I think of, for example, a lot of the anti-vax sites out there that present yes. themselves as mm-hmm. very valid and cite mm-hmm. so-called experts and don't really anywhere on their site on their site make clear that they do have an agenda. And because this presents as a kind of expert expert website on the topic, you know, we've, we've seen this, right? We've seen this with measles. We've seen this with other things where, you know, suddenly this is getting passed around Facebook and nobody mm-hmm. knows the deal. Nobody knows how shady the source is. And next thing you know, we are having outbreaks of measles, which should have been and was eradicated decades ago because people saw something that was fake health news and believed it to be real news. So I, it's just, it's so frustrating to me that, that, that exists. And of course the internet um, and social media makes this all so much easier to spread fake news. But I think um, also more generally speaking, beyond just health misinformation, the term fake news really didn't exist before 2016 or, or if it did, it didn't, it wasn't as broadly applied Mm -hmm. to the mainstream media. I think that um, it's, as you said, it's a good transition from what we were talking about before, because I think a lot of readers, especially some of certain political persuasions assume that, um, that, you know, many mainstream media outlets, not only, are publishing news that is wrong because it doesn't support their own political or or religious views, but that we are purposely doing it so that we can spread lies. And, that's, yeah. and they've kind of lumped this all together as you are the fake news media, you are, you know, insulting our president or insulting our stance on a variety of issues. And you are, you are doing this purposely so that you can spread your strange fake news views. <laughs> and it's, it's really kind of mystifying. I mean, we as reporters do see this all the time. I mean, this is a, a regular line that we get in reader emails or at replies on Twitter. And it's kind of mystifying to us because if anything, I feel that journalism and journalists have become much more stronger it's much stronger in their craft i mean yeah we can't really afford to make yeah not that it was ever okay to have a mistake but we can't really afford to make errors in a climate like this mm-hmm. and so i feel that we have all become even even you know more thorough in making sure that our stories are accurate and even more careful in making sure that we have a balanced perspective on um in all of our stories that we're reporting on. Um, so it's, it's just interesting to me because I feel like if anything, we are even further than being fake news. And yet we are accused of being that all the time. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird 
it's a it's an odd kind of bubble to exist in because um on the one hand people are going to make mistakes i mean that's just the nature of being a human being you're you're it, there's going to be a mistake made and every time sure. you make a mistake it shouldn't be cited as fake news it should just be right. you're a human being and sometimes you're going to spell a name wrong or get a statistic wrong right. or dyslex- dyslexia is going to set in after exhaustion or, or something um right but it seems to me fake news has become the term for i don't like it so i'm going to say yeah. it's fake and that's what's dangerous yeah. because you're just filtering out things and 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 disbelieving reality because it doesn't apply right. to your worldview. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And you know, I would just like to say that all journalists are not perfect like you said everyone's human and maybe there are some um I mean, I personally feel like everyone I work with is so intelligent and so good at at their job, but Generally speaking, as a field, I'm sure that there are, you know, some journalists who, who are not all, you know, as as wonderful as my colleagues. So um, I certainly can, you know, understand the perspective. But as you said, when it becomes applied so broadly to an entire mm-hmm. industry, just because some people do not agree or feel like they like what they're reading, it, it does become dangerous. You're absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's... Um... To me, it's, I feel like, I, I'll, I'll check this later, but I feel like it was one of like, you know how at the end of the year, the uh, Webster's Dictionary puts out the most used words of the year. I feel like one year fake news mm-hmm. made it in to that list of things that, that was said the most um, just because of this shift since the election. Um, this is, I kind of want to do a hard turn <laughs> if we can, because sure. um, I, I wrote this as a, as a totally random question for you, uh, but um, I've written a little bit for stuff online and I've had stuff that, uh, like my books and things have gone online and then people have commented on them. And I so I've dealt with my fair share of trolls and people just trying to be um, obnoxious just to be obnoxious. Uh, and I know from right. reading through your Facebook page that you're not immune to some odd ducks that have crossed your path. You are correct. <laughs> um, so how how have you dealt with that, um, with trolling or with people just trying to pass on a lot of negativity or blowing up your feed to uh, pass on negative information? How do you handle that? I personally do not give them oxygen. I don't think that it makes sense to engage with with people who are just commenting to be rude and to make make a claim that's outrageous about something that I've reported. I will say some of my colleagues deal with this differently. I have seen some of them who will, you know, engage and interact and and have a back and forth. Um, for me personally, that's not something that I feel comfortable with. However, if someone is um, trolling me in the way that seems like, wait a minute, they might actually have a legitimate point here. There might be something in my story that needs to be clarified or needs to be added or or even needs to be corrected. So if that is the case, even if someone is <laughs> saying, <laughs> you know, saying it to me in a really rude way, I certainly will always, you know, look into that if they're saying you know you were totally wrong here i i will i'll always reach i'll always um look into it and if they if they're right and i was wrong i always politely respond and say thank Mm -hmm. you so much for reading thank you for pointing this out because the fact is i don't want to have anything that is inaccurate or or is could be interpreted in a way that's inaccurate in any of my stories so i appreciate it do I appreciate the rudeness? No, but <laughs> if someone's pointing out something that is incorrect, I'm I'm always grateful that they take the time to do it. But generally speaking, trolls, I yeah, do not. I, my my thinking is don't give them oxygen, don't engage. Not something I'm yeah interested in. It's um. There's a really great book called This Is Why We Can't Have Nice Things, and I'm blanking on the author, but she studied trolls. She went online and I think kind of trolled the trolls for some time and and did an analysis of their behavior. And one of the things she found was that that's what feeds them is, like you said, to give them oxygen. It it 
it's what makes people want to keep coming back. But can I just say how refreshing it is that you're so open-minded that you're like, well, maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. Let me double check and make sure that I didn't do something. I mean, that's yeah. that's amazing that you can keep that presence of mind and say, everyone has a space. Let's just make sure I'm I'm correct and carry on. Thank you. Well, um, an example that I think of probably as my top told story is about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or two years ago, I wrote a story examining um, water fluoridation, which sounds really, I mean, it sounds kind of, yes, it sounds kind of boring just as a topic, but the idea, the premise of the story was that um, science shows that fluoride in water is good for kids, that it prevents cavities and that there are um, really, it's, it's such a minute amount in the water that it's enough to, you know, prevent tooth decay and cavities, but not enough to cause any um, mm-hmm. side effects or, or negative safety concerns. Um, but the idea of the story was that science says that, however, there are many people who have, um, for lack of a better word, conspiracy theories about water fluoridation, that it's causing all sorts of illnesses ranging from Alzheimer's to cancer, that it's making people dumb, and even as far as that it's a way for the government to control us. So it was this look at how um, some states and some cities are having, are holding votes on whether to either continue fluoridating their water or to um, fluoridate for the first time if they if they haven't already started adding fluoride to their water. And that story, Adrian, I, I'm still getting emails to this day, almost, what? you know, more than a year later about or it's people sending me studies from Iran. I, I mean, it's insane. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and it was <clears throat> when the story came out, it was, I mean, my inbox was not a happy place to be. It was wow. just very, very intense. Just, I guess it's just kind of like, sort of like the anti- the, the vaccine um, controversy mm-hmm. is just, you know, a kind of similar thing, like a, a health, something that affects everyone personally, a health issue that somehow has turned into a much broader, you know, this is the government versus the people kind of issue. But I will say I, I got many, many, many crazy emails after <laughs> that story. Wow. But I got one that we actually, um, added a line to the story because it, and of course I'm, I'm not able to remember what it was. I, I'm not able to remember now what it was, but it was something where I thought, okay, here we go. Here's another really, you know, crazy email in my inbox, but I read it through and there was, there was one point that they made that I went back to my editor and I said, you know, this is a good point. Maybe we should add a clause. And we ended up adding I wish I could remember what it was. We ended up adding a few words to the sentence just to clarify things to this reader. And I emailed them back. I said, thank you so much. We've, you know, updated the story with, with this detail. I, I appreciate that you took the time to write to me. But yeah. So, wow. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes amid the trolls, there's, there's something very helpful. And I think it's, you know, not fair to, to just kind of write, write them all off. Um, it's so funny that you would, this is a side note, as you had mentioned fluoride, but um, I grew up in a really, really small town in northern Michigan, really rural community. So there was no fluoride in our water. My parents would take me to the dentist mm-hmm. and they would have me rinse my mouth twice a month with fluoride. And I hated it. It was gross. It was, I had to do it for like two minutes straight without spitting it out. It was the, uh. it was the worst. But as an adult, <laughs> as an adult, my teeth are amazing. <laughs> So <laughs> it worked out really that well. So funny. There's also a really right. funny that's part. Interesting. I, that's actually very interesting. I didn't come across that in the story. A what if your town doesn't floor, doesn't have fluoride in the water? Do, do dentists offer that? That's very interesting. Yeah, they, they mine did. Um, there's also a really funny episode of Parks and Recreation where they want to add fluoride to the water and the town freaks out. It's I'll send you the the link to it. It's very funny. That sounds great. Um. So as we're wrapping up, I have a couple more things. I just wanted to know if you have any journalist heroes or people that you just love to read or watch. Well, I'm a huge admirer of Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor of the New York Times mm. for what they did to 
break open the Harvey Weinstein scandal and start mm-hmm. the Me Too movement. I think that they are absolutely incredible. I'm so happy that they won the Pulitzer for that, as well as Ronan Farrow, who literally at times risked his life to get that story out for the New Yorker. So I would say that, um, yeah, at the moment, they are for sure all my journalist heroes. Amen to that. I I completely agree. I've read everything about all of them, including their stuff. Yeah. It's fascinating. Awesome. Um, okay. And then the question I'm asking everybody, um, who or what do you think deserves to be voted most popular? Okay. So this is not news related, but okay. I feel like M. Night Shyamalan series Servant on Apple TV Plus is <laughs> so great. And has not gotten nearly enough attention or accolades. Um, have you watched the show? No. Now I'm going to, though. Yes, please do. I mean, I think that you are not alone. It, it feels like nobody is watching it except for all of the people on the Reddit board about Servant <laughs> who immediately cluster um, on Reddit after each episode and, like, share their theories and reactions. But it's it's just a beautifully shot show, and the acting is so strong, and it's also just very 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 creepy um <laughs> and the show that is not the i mean i guess the acting as well but um yeah. yeah it's i i really feel like servant deserves to be voted most popular which i guess is ironic given that it's it sounds like it's very um actually unpopular <laughs> but i think it deserves to be most popular i will say as a caveat um just this week, a copyright infringement was filed against the show creator really? by a filmmaker. Yes, by a filmmaker who says that they cribbed from her film from, I think a while, many years ago. But um, I haven't seen I haven't seen her movie, but the trailer looks very different. Mm. So I do still stand by my opinion that Servant should be voted most popular with that very minor caveat. <laughs> That just is what makes you a true journalist, like you know. But just there's a small detail. Just let's just make sure that's there. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Thank you so much for doing this and for talking with me. I just I cannot thank you enough. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to do so. I thank you for it. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can find more episodes of Most Popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators, can be found on my website, which is adriantreer-bnick.com. And if you don't know how to spell my name, the website is linked in episode notes. And I am also on Instagram at at dr.adrienetb. That's at dr.adrienetb. Thank you so much to my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes. And I will see you next time.